Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We want to finish up the section that we began last week. We'll begin reading in verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us or preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the Corinthian saints have been captivated by false teachers seeking to discredit Paul and his apostolic ministry, and so Paul penned this letter. It's genuinely difficult to believe that they would doubt the man who God had saved them through, the man that founded the church, that had laid the foundation for it during an 18-month stint with these people. And yet, if this letter is any indication, they did not merely doubt the Apostle Paul. They were on the brink of rejecting him altogether, maybe even as a brother. So Paul is obviously defending his ministry in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we find ourselves right in the middle of just such a defense. So... Paul has discussed all of the ins and outs of the New Covenant in chapter 3. He presses on in chapter 4, discussing really what New Covenant ministry looks like, why it's encouraging, what the central theme is. He says in verse 5 of chapter 4, "...for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord." with ourselves as your servants, or with ourselves as your slaves, for Jesus' sake. Well, that describes Paul's ministry. And it should describe our ministry. It appears, not only from what we've already seen in this letter, but from what's coming, it appears that the false teachers were not very impressed with Paul's physical appearance or with his abilities as a speaker. Chapter 12, Paul addresses their complaint in which they have described the Apostle Paul as weak in bodily presence and his speech of no account. In fact, Paul does not even argue with their accusation that he is unskilled in speaking in chapter 11. He just accepts it. Now I seriously doubt the false teachers ever 
once so much as considered that Paul might take their accusation and turn it into a reason to praise God. And yet that's precisely what's going on right here in the section that we're in, uh, beginning really with verse 7 that we began with last week. Paul offers this illustration of a piece of cracked pottery, jars of clay, he calls it, through which God works. And I told you last week, you know, terracotta pottery, which is what this refers to for them, was much like a plastic grocery bag for us. It's cheap. It's replaceable. Nobody even thinks about These jars of clay that Paul speaks about merely carried the valuables. They're not the treasure. The treasure's inside. These jars of clay, these plastic grocery bags describe Paul and they describe us. That's what we are. We're not the treasure. Despite modern Christianity's plea, God doesn't need us. We need Him. We're not the treasure. God is the treasure. The gospel is the treasure. And God works through us precisely so He gets all the credit. Or as Paul puts it in verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. God uses this plastic grocery bag of a person to share the gospel with this other plastic grocery bag of a person so that God gets the credit for the treasure that's inside. That's Paul's point. I actually considered preaching verses 7 through 18 in in one sitting, but there's just so much here that I I didn't want to skimp on it. This is really just part two to what we began last week. We're not really changing gears. We're still cruising along that same path. So don't let that jars of clay illustration leave your mind. We're still really dealing with that today. The name of the sermon this morning, though, is A Heart for the Future. A heart for the future. And in this text, Paul expresses that his his confidence in the new covenant gospel and his confidence in God's promises of the future are what drove him in ministry. And ultimately then what should drive us in ministry. So he begins here in verse 13. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. So again, that same passage, still focused on missionary work, but he references here Psalm 116.10. He actually quotes it from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it, it says there, I believed, therefore I spoke. And Paul says here that he had the the same spirit of faith as the psalmist in Psalm 116. It's possible Paul refers to the Holy Spirit, but contextually it's more likely that he's simply talking about an attitude of faith that he has. He's saying that he had the same kind of faith that the psalmist had. Let me explain. This is interesting. And I think Paul certainly was very aware of this. In the setting of Psalm 116, 
the psalmist is actually going through a trial, very similar to the Apostle Paul, that God has rescued him from. What Psalm 116.3 says, The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish. So the psalmist is writing about God's deliverance from this time of distress that he has gone through. And so he writes, I believed and so I spoke. What is that same attitude that Paul has? Paul's going through this, this time of distress. He's... He's experiencing affliction in ministry. And so Paul writes, we also, like the psalmist, we also believe. And so we also speak. In other words, the Apostle Paul is explaining precisely why he did not allow persecution to stop his missionary efforts. Why he pressed on, even in the midst of trials. It's because he knew the gospel is true. He knew men were dying in their sins, and Christ is the only remedy mankind has to escape the penalty of their sins. Paul knew. We believed. And so we spoke. Now Paul could have been comfortable had he just stopped preaching. But he had the remedy. And mankind is in need of the remedy. We believed. And so we spoke. There's far too much on the line. So Paul writes, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us, uh, uh, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. So the message of the resurrection specifically is a catalyst for Paul's ministry. It drove him. It drove him. In his final letter, Paul's final letter, at least as far as we know, that he sent to young Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, he wrote, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Again, this is Paul's driving force in ministry. There was nothing that men could possibly do that would ever change the truth that Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is alive and that changes everything about today. I know I've I've shared that daily tweet from Art Rayner with you a number of times. Every morning I get up, I check Twitter, and every day there's a tweet from Art Rayner that says, Jesus is alive and that changes everything about today. You'd do well, I'd do well to make a mental note of that and say it first thing every morning. It was true for Paul in the first century. It's true today. It's what should drive us. And Martin Luther... In, in that hymn that we often sing, A Mighty Fortress, we have those, those words that say, the, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom's forever. Right? And Luther, by the way, much like the Apostle Paul and the psalmist in Psalm 116, Luther's life was very much on the line. He lived every day with a target on his back because the Catholics wanted him dead. So he understood those those lyrics. Guys, this is why we study theology. This is why. 
Now, I fear sometimes we study the Bible just so we can argue with somebody else about it. And sadly, I think sometimes preachers are reason for that. If so, shame on us. But that's not the reason. On the contrary, we study true biblical doctrine so that it changes the way we act when we walk out those doors back there. That's why we study the Bible. It causes us to live properly. It causes us to serve properly and to share the truth of God accurately. That's why we study Scripture. Let me put it this way. The primary reason we study the Bible isn't to change the people out there. It's to change the people in here. We need to make sure we have that straight. Anyway, Paul's, in Paul's case, his understanding of the resurrection, that theology, that truth, that doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection, it drove him. Knowing that all people will be raised from the dead one day. Everybody in this room. If the Lord doesn't come back during our lifetime, we're going to die. And we're all going to be raised, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's Daniel 12. Paul knew that. He believed it. And so he desired for people to come to Jesus now so that they will be raised to everlasting life. And so Paul preached courageously in spite of the constant opposition that he received from all these false teachers. Let's move on. He says in verse 15, For, he's, he's going further, fours, there's, that's a connection word, For, it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is, this is rich right here actually. This is, this is rich. For it is all for your sake, he says. This is the definition of selflessness. Paul put his own safety, his own comfort on hold so that he could minister to other people for their good. Right? Again, Paul could have stopped all the persecution if he had just kept his mouth shut. But he didn't. This is selfless. And he's not merely... Referring to the Corinthians, of course, but they're a perfect example of Paul putting his life on hold to share the gospel with other people. Because Paul kept on going, because he persevered through persecutions, the result was that he came to Corinth and these saints had been miraculously saved out of false religion and brought to faith in Christ by the amazing grace of a sovereign God. And they were aware of it. They knew it. But they weren't the only ones. Paul had reached more people with the gospel than we can possibly imagine. Well, his point here is that he pressed on in spite of opposition because people needed the gospel to escape the eternal punishment of their sins. Or let me put it this way. People were dying... Paul had the cure. There is an eternal crisis. And because Paul knew that, because he was fully persuaded of it, he preached. This is greatly important. It was not merely about being or seeing people saved that Paul preached. 
Sometimes I think that we think that way. Probably most of the time that our entire goal in preaching is to see people come to faith in Christ. Not to Paul. Understand, missionary work, sharing the gospel, the Great Commission, is not primarily for the salvation of sinners. Bear with me. You remember when I preached through the solas a while back? Sola Scriptura, the Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Remember those five sermons? That last one. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Alone is the key there, right? So according to the Scripture alone, we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You see where we're going, I suppose. Understand, by the way, this text is clear that Paul was preaching Soli Deo Gloria 1,500 years before there was even a need for the Protestant Reformation. Paul believed in the glory of God alone. He says so here. The Reformers have no claim to that doctrine. That doctrine is rooted in the text of Scripture. Notice what Paul says. He wanted to reach more and more people so that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What's Paul saying here? Here's what he wants. He wants the biggest crowd he can gather to praise God throughout eternity for all the good that He has done for us. That's what Paul is saying. You see, Paul is not merely man-focused. He is God-focused. Now look, I, I am not at all suggesting Paul did not love his fellow man. and He did not rejoice when a sinner came to faith in Christ. I'm not telling you that. Jesus said there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And I'm sure that the Apostle Paul rejoiced when people repented and believed the gospel. But foundationally, beneath all of that, the goal that drove the Apostle Paul in ministry was the gathering of this crowd of redeemed sinners to sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. That's what Paul was gathering sinners for. For the glory of God alone. Listen guys, if we could get behind Paul here and really grasp this, sharing the gospel for the glory of God alone, I honestly believe we'd be more faithful at sharing the gospel when we were given opportunity. Okay, let's, let's move on. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. So, Paul says, based on all of that, not just the little part we've looked at here this morning. But they, they didn't read this letter over a year's time bit by bit like we're doing, right? No, they read the whole thing. Based on, based on all of that, on the new covenant sufficiency, over the, the jars of clay, over the glory of God, based on, based on all of that, based on all that richness, Paul says, we do not lose heart. By the way, this is the same thing Paul said back in verse 1 of this chapter. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This is, this is a theme here. He's defending himself. Paul, if you're being persecuted, why don't you just quit? He says, no, no, we're, we're driven to this ministry 
because of these things. We do not lose heart. Paul is explaining precisely why and how he is able to press on through trials and tribulations and afflictions that he was enduring. You know, the false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Corinth were essentially saying, you know, Paul, he ain't much to look at. There's no way God's working through this man. Well, in the words of Donald Trump, good words, but they happen to be wrong. Look, not only was God working through Paul, He was working through Paul mightily. Paul was a cracked pot, right? He's admitted that. I am a cracked pot. I am a plastic grocery bag. I freely admit I am broken. And that's what makes my ministry all that more great because God is working through this cracked pot through this jar of clay. God was still using Paul every single day to gather sinners into the family of God through the preaching of the gospel. So that one day all those sinners could in one voice praise the Lord throughout all eternity. And Paul says that drove him. Then notice verse 16. Though our, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. A couple of commentators that I read this week wanted to make this about Paul killing the old man, about mortification, which David Bailey spoke to us about a couple of weeks ago, you know, in our conference. And, and look, I, I don't doubt that that was happening in the life of Paul. Paul was certainly fighting the sin that remained in his life. He was pressing on to be more like Jesus, more in line with the Word. I just don't think that's at all what this text is talking about. Context is the key for everything. This text is no exception. Paul has talked about his body, our bodies, being jars of clay. He said in verse 10 that he is always carrying around in the body of the, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In chapter 5, literally the very next passage, Paul says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Again, he is clearly talking about our physical body, not only in the passage before, but in the passage after. I think it's just consistent to believe he's still talking about that here. Look, Paul was literally taking a beating. He was. Thus, the illustration of the cracked pot... He's being used up. Look, David Garland says, quote, from this vantage point, it looks like Paul is falling apart. End quote. Absolutely. John MacArthur writes, quote, the apostle was old before his time, worn out in the cause of Christ. End quote. Amen. That's Paul's point. Our outer self is wasting away. But look, the persecution he was receiving, the, the, the affliction he was enduring, it's actually working for his good. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
This is not a one-time thing he's looking for. He's not, he's not only looking for the time that Jesus returns and gives us a new body. No, he says this is happening as an ongoing thing. It is happening day by day. His physical body was getting weaker. By the way, not, not just because of persecution. He's just getting older too. We can re- at least relate to that. But through it all, his spiritual life, the inner self, as he words it here, was growing in faith and he was being conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, Paul wrote to the saints in Rome in chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look, Paul saw that God was using the persecution to make him stronger in the faith. Perhaps we miss out on some of this because we don't put ourselves out there like Paul put himself out there. That's something to think about. Then notice this. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Can you believe that Paul refers to his trials as light, momentary affliction. Let me share a few things that he writes in in this letter. We haven't got to it yet, but in chapter 16, he, he mentions that he had gone through afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, slander, was treated as an imposter, and a host of other things. Listen to what he writes in chapter 11. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, end quote. Those things are precisely what Paul here refers to as light, momentary affliction. That's mind-blowing. We think when the milkshake machine's down at McDonald's, 
which is often, we're under some type of big-time affliction, right? And yet here's Paul considering being stoned within an inch of his life as light momentary affliction. Do you think maybe, possibly, we might have our perspective off just a tad? Are we really convinced that our biggest trials are high taxes and high gas prices? Really? Maybe, maybe that attitude exposes the fact that we're just spoiled. And maybe, just maybe that's at least part of the reason that Christians in America today are far more likely to campaign for a politician than to share the gospel with their neighbor across the street. Maybe that's the problem. Let me say this again. I know I've said it many times, but the freedoms that we enjoy as believers in America are extremely, extremely uncommon so far as the history of Christianity is concerned. We need to know that. Don't let your comforts woo you to sleep. Let your knowledge of the future, your biblical knowledge of the future, wake you up and continue to drive you to daily serve Jesus. That's what happened with Paul. Look, our eschatology must never become merely knowledge that we argue with other brothers and sisters about. No, our eschatology must drive how we live. Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Well, this is very encouraging. You know, back in chapter 1, Paul wrote of the persecution that he had endured in Asia. And he says, we were so utterly burdened or under great pressure or weighed down. We were so weighed down beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But here in chapter 4, Paul puts that persecution into an eternal perspective. And he calls it light momentary affliction, at least when it's compared to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, that's, Paul had the right understanding of the future, and it affected the way he thought. One commentator even described the persecution that Paul was going through as weightless in comparison to what God has prepared. Weightless. It's like sitting a feather on one side of a scale and an elephant on the other side. Well, there, there is just no competition there. There's, there's simply no way to compare this life, no matter how bad it is, with how good the life to come is going to be. That's what Paul is saying here. It is beyond all comparison. But Paul's eyes were not focused on physical things. Things that are seen. Now Paul had his focus locked on eternal things. Things that are unseen. By the way, I'm sure you picked up on the, the word play here. Focusing your eyes on things that are unseen and other staring at something that's invisible. You can't do that. It doesn't make sense. Unless you're looking through the eyes of faith. That's what he means. But Paul wasn't like Madonna. 
He wasn't a material girl in a material world. No, he knew there was something far bigger at stake, and so he worked for things that are unseen. Moyer Hubbard had this, this powerful quote. Here's what he says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says, There is an unseen reality that is more real, more important, and more permanent than the visible reality that daily confronts our senses. End quote. Amen. And here's why. Notice. Because the things that are seen are transient. Or we might translate that, the things that are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The NLT, which I don't love, does pretty good here though. Here's how it translates this verse. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. That's precisely what Paul is getting at right here in this text. You remember the words of Jesus, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, Paul was not out there building a 401k. He's not trying to buy the latest automobile. He's not constantly upgrading his home. This world had no attraction for Paul. He worked for the things that mattered. Now... Let me clarify, things are not in and of themselves bad. No, God blesses us with stuff. He does. Thank Him for that. Give Him praise. But, and this is key, stuff is not God. Stuff is not God. We must keep our priorities straight. And I fear we sometimes fail at that, especially in a society where we have a lot of stuff. I doubt I have to make the, the argument very hard to convince you that our society ranks stuff, toys, far above God. And we live in this society. And we're influenced by it. And we need to correct that when that comes into our heart. By the way, Paul, Paul is not, by talking about the, the unseen and the seen here, he is not arguing in any way against a physical resurrection of our bodies. He's not at all arguing against that. He's simply making the point that right now we can't actually see those things. We see that by faith. But Paul absolutely believes in a physical resurrection of our bodies. He spends the bulk of 1 Corinthians 15 arguing for that very thing. So let your understanding of future things then influence your actions now in the present. Okay, the chapter division here is not great, but it's here. And I'm running out of time, so we'll just stop here. But not before you have some application. Let me offer a few things. Whatever you're going through in life, because we're all doing life, and for some of us, it goes smoother than it does others. Some of you have gone through trials that I've not gone through, and probably I've gone through some trials you have not gone through. 
But no matter how big those things seem, in reality, they are light, momentary affliction. Now let me offer this caveat. Paul's troubles were neither light or momentary in the midst of them. Like when he was whipped, it hurt. He didn't enjoy it. When he was stoned and left for dead, it, it hurt. We needn't expect that our trials aren't going to be painful at times. Paul's were. Paul is not demanding or suggesting that we should enjoy persecution. I can't imagine he enjoyed being whipped, not at least not in the physical sense. But his afflictions never slowed him down because he knew they'd cease at some point. Whatever he was going through, from eternity's vantage point, which is what truly matters, whatever he was going through was light and momentary. The key here is we need the right perspective. and We're going to get that from Scripture. From Scripture. You know, we really need to try to view all of life from an eternal vantage point. We need a heart for the future, like Paul has here in this text. Our eschatology, our understanding of future things, specifically in this text, the resurrection of our bodies, eternal bliss, the perfect worship and glory of God throughout eternity, these things should drive us. And if we get this right, we stop putting every bit of our effort into retirement that may last a few minutes here on earth. Again, I'm not, I'm not telling you not to prepare for retirement. I would prefer that my tax dollars didn't pay for your house. You know, if God's given you the means of, of putting a little bit back, be good stewards of your money. Paul's not telling you not to but it cannot overtake you and be your primary focus. Then you're not going to be a good servant of Jesus. The knowledge of the future, our biblical knowledge of the future, will determine our present course of action. If we're living in the here and now far more than we're preparing for eternity, our doctrine is off somewhere, at least in the application. Paul had his priorities in the proper place. And that's what we learn in this text. That's why things were light and momentary for him. And understand, this is big in our day when everybody's looking for meaning in life. The only thing that will give you true meaning in life is understanding the truth of God's Word. Understanding that there is an end coming and in Christ, because we are united with Him, we come out on the good side. People are always looking for meaning of of life, but it's only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not found anywhere else. And that mindset, that understanding, will help us not lose heart in ministry. Like Paul says. It is actually the truth that has driven Christians for the past 2,000 years. Now, I'm going to leave you this last thought. I don't want to leave here without you thinking about your own mortality. If time goes on, everybody in this room will draw their last breath at some point. It's a fact. It may happen today. We don't know. We aren't told. Listen to the words of Moses 
in Psalm 90. Here's what Moses writes. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or the your wrath according to the fear of you? So, Moses writes, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Well, that's good advice, I would think. Whether you're lost or saved, whether you're young or old, these words need to resonate. We need to number our days so that we get a heart of wisdom. Life is fleeting. It is. James describes it like a morning mist that appears for a little time and then just vanishes away. That's it. James 4. Kids, listen, you'll be old before you know it. You'll have a gray beard maybe before. That seemed like a good illustration at the time. But we need to grasp that we are two things. Mortal and sinners before a thrice holy God. If you're lost here this morning, you are a dead man walking. You need to change your mind. As Brian preached a couple of weeks ago, you need to change your mind about yourself and your sins, and you need to change your mind about Jesus. You need to flee to Him by faith. You need to trust Him with every fiber of your being. You need to believe that His death at Calvary is the only possible fix to all the mess that you've gotten yourself into. That His redemptive work in paying for your sin is the only hope that you have to escape the eternal wrath of God. If you're a believer here this morning, you need to have the heart of Paul. Not only for the lost, we need that for sure, but you need to have a heart for the glory of God. Think of your ministry, uh, of our ministry even corporately, as gathering people for that future eternal worship service so that we can all praise God together in one voice. That's what Paul describes here. So that we can sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Stand with me if you will. Ben.